Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. This Emmy-nominated composer got a start through a chance meeting with composer extraordinaire Harry Gregson Williams. Going from writing advertisement music to film and TV music, he's known for writing on the Netflix original series Bloodline, Disney's Elena of Avalor, for which she received multiple daytime Emmy nominations, and an Annie Award nomination, as well as for the hitch CBS show Scorpion, co-composed with Brian Tyler. And the composer is Tony Morales. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for having me. For sure. So, Tony, I know that you said in the past that Kiss was your favorite band that got you into <laughs> music. What do you think is the connection between fans of rock music who then go into doing film and TV music later on? Or is there one? You know, uh, that's a great question, man. Uh, I can only speak for my personal experience with that. And um, God, I've never, that's a great question. because I'm trying to figure out, I'm going to do the timeline real quick in my head. Basically, yes, I grew up as a, you know, a rocker. Guitar was my first instrument and, you know, Kiss influenced me heavily, like as early as the age of six. And, you know, growing up being a guitar player, I was, you know, always just in that rock world. But I will say, as we were talking earlier, when I went to college, so music was my, you know, path and I pursued it. But when I got to college, my musical vocabulary just totally grew. And one of the things of learning there was the the intro to um, Stravinsky and some other more contemporary composers that personally, I felt a lot of their orchestral writing was relatable in like a rock metal sense, particularly, you know, the Rite of Spring. It's got that opening, that big, dun, 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 which is very like chugging guitar chords and things like that. So I don't know. I mean, for me, it was kind of a natural evolution to, you know, growing into that space and going one step further. At the same time, I had also learned about a score from Jerry Goldsmith for The Omen. And Mm -hmm. that was just like a big light moment, a light bulb moment, right? Because it was kind of it was orchestral and it was it was metal to me and it was exciting and 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 inspiring. But it was written to a film and it was a supportive storyline. And it was just that whole that was just like, whoa, what is this? This is amazing. What is this this work is seems so cool and something, you know maybe I can try and do it. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that was for me personally, kind of the transition from one to the other. But, you know, as you've said, and it's become more so over the years, definitely you see a parallel between folks in the rock world or even pop world and having, you know, a transition into the film and TV world. And that also has a lot to do with just the, the growth and evolution of scores. Because not all scores need to be orchestral or traditional sound you know it's um it's exciting to have the variety that we do have now for sure yeah i think that's a funny thing from some like film scoring graduates who who know how to write orchestrally but 
maybe the production shops aren't mm-hmm. quite there yet, or maybe that's all that they know how to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. You know, um, and that's, and like, they're both their own art forms. They mm-hmm. both require a lot of practice and, uh, and, and, you know, some know-how and intuition and, you know, all the talent that, you know, is just there inherently needs to be kind of just opened up. But, you know, I'm excited for having gotten my start in commercials because that was for me coming from like the film scoring, you know, degree world, writing in ads was my production education because you are just thrown into it. And at this time, this is like um, early 2000s, you're just asked to write so many styles that you would never have dreamed of being asked to do because you haven't written them before. Yet you have to figure out how to do them on the fly and convincingly, and you learn. You totally learn from that. So I felt like I got, you know, another education in that time working with musicians in a setting where prior to that, I would just sit and obsess over music, like in my room and like whatever, MIDI or write on paper and change it a million times before I would commit. Can't do that when you're like producing in a studio with other musicians and you've got clients behind you and, and the pressure of like, spontaneous decision making so they're definitely two art forms that um you know are really neat to uh, be a, be a part of right well in terms of having clients like on the back couch in the studio during those types of things for ads i'm sure that you had to sell the music uh outside of just writing really good music were there any like good tricks you learned or or things you found effective man you know i i learned yeah i mean it's you you learn to if if there's if they'll give you a glimmer of hope where if if a client isn't necessarily I mean there's scenarios you kind of got to dance around. Sometimes they may be like I'm not sure or maybe and and you know maybe it's just that one instrument or I'm not sure why this part seems really dark to me. And it's you 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 learn through you learn through experience how to dissect what they're really saying, right? Because sometimes in your mind, when you get a note right, right immediately, you, you go right to like the composition or you go, oh, maybe they don't like that chord or maybe the melody's wrong or and you start second guessing everything. But a lot of times they're talking about something much, much simpler than where we go to as creatives. Like, oh, maybe they just don't like that bass line that goes, that distends or maybe the whatever the organ part going on in here is just, you know, rubbing against them wrong. So some of the tricks that I would come up or, you know, start to develop was to kind of just really listen to what they say and offer suggestions. And sometimes just part of the back and forth, just giving them the opportunity to put their hands in it and like, you know, mix with the, the ingredients will, will sell a track that they otherwise would have said, eh, I don't like this, which is the beauty of doing recordings with your clients and your producers and directors and having them be a part. Cause when it becomes a true collaboration, they definitely perk up and get excited. And, it, and it's, and it's, um, you know, everyone feels good about it and like they had a say. So yeah, a lot of practice and, and try not to super overthink what their what the revision note is because you can um, solve a lot of things much simpler than you than you may think. Mm-hmm. For sure. I remember like one of the first projects I ever got, I brought my uh, OP1 synth with me to the, the first meeting. I was just playing mm-hmm. with it in the hallway before the meeting started and they come out and they're like, what is that? And then I, I was like, hey, say something into it. And they whoever said like, Hey, hello. And then sampled it made into a synth pad. And I think they assumed every time there was a synth pad on the show that it was their voice going forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen, it's just, you know, and it's part of the fun too. Cause then you can let go of your own, you know, um, feelings about the music. And when somebody else like kind of validates it with their own input, 
it just makes the whole thing, you know, better and experience better. For sure. So uh, just to go back a bit, though, so, so you said you went to music school and you went to Berkeley, right? Yes. Berkeley College of Music. You said you were exposed to a lot of different music genres mm. there. I'm sure a lot of different players, too. What were some of the biggest like musical realizations you had while there outside of wanting to go into film music? Well, you know, um, definitely when you go to a music college or at least at Berkeley, in my experience, you know, quickly realized I definitely was not, you know, as as great as I may have thought I was, you know, in my instrument, because I did go there to be a performance major. My thought was, I know I can play guitar. I've been playing it all my life. I've, you know, been working up to this moment. I can, you know, I'm really good at my performance aspect. So I'm just going to pursue that. But when you get there and was, I wasn't quite ready for was the caliber musician one. And then two, the introductory classes that everybody had to take regardless of their um, intent with, with major. So what that means is um, I was thrown into arranging classes, you know, harmony classes, ear training, and, you know, all these other musical worlds that weren't really on my radar. So very quickly, and, and fortunately, I was inspired by that. I didn't like cower from it. I, I didn't look at it as like, oh my God, this is, you know, this is too much. And I embraced it and it really opened up a lot of, you know, obviously, you know, down the road, it opened up a lot of doors to my creative um, output. And it can be super intimidating when you when you walk into a situation like that. Plus, you have jazz musicians, rock musicians, classical musicians, you know, a lot of different styles of music that people are there to play. And it's pretty intense. And people from all over the world, you know, I had gone to Berkeley, which is in Boston, from New Hampshire. So it wasn't a big trip for me. It was like an hour south from where I lived. And it was kind of like being local. But being from a small little town there and getting there was um, pretty exciting to see, you know, so much, so much newness. But yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. Mm -hmm. It must have been nice having a studio time there too and just being able to, I assume like, did you start learning how to like produce and record there? They give you, um, you know, gosh, if, you know, looking back four years is just, <clears throat> it's not enough. They, I mean, they, I went there right out of high school. So 18, um, so it took a few years to understand, okay, maybe I need to make sure I take this class this semester. Cause it's not like you could just take anything you wanted. When I switched my, my major from performance to film scoring, which I believe was the beginning of my sophomore year, it immediately eliminated some courses that I could take as part of the curriculum. So for example, mm -hmm. if I wanted to continue like my guitars, um, private studies, I would have to pay extra for that. Uh, as opposed to I was required to now take orchestration, copying, and all these things that fall in line with film music. So there were minimal, as far as the film music program went at that time, we started doing um, assignment sessions probably in the third year and throughout the year and then definitely throughout the fourth year where we would get assigned a scene. We'd have to find our own players to come in at this time because there wasn't like a set or orchestra. So depending on really who you knew would actually dictate what kind of score you'd write. Like, okay, I think I know a, I could get a sax player. I can combine it with a cello. I know my buddy plays electric bass. And you would just kind of piece oh. these piece these things together, um, which, you know, I mean, it would spark for some interesting cues, but it also kind of helped you become resourceful with, you know, what you had in front of you, uh, which is actually a good real world, you know, you know, looking back now and going, having gone through what I've gone through, it's a good way to kind of get ready for the real world out there. 
yeah, I'm sure that just jogged your creativity too. It's like, what would happen if all I know, <laughs> if the only people I know are a sax player and a, yeah. um, a flautist. And I know they can make it because they've got a break between classes at this time that I can only record in. <laughs> it was so, right. It was crazy. Uh, so then what drew you to LA and like, uh, can you talk about like how you ended up out here? Mm, absolutely. Um, let's see. So again, maybe you're getting a theme here. I, you know, younger, I was, I was definitely move moving forward at a, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'll make a decision and just stick with it kind of thing. So literally the, let's see the spring of my senior year at Berkeley, we were like weeks away from graduating. So this must've been late April, early May. And, um, a buddy of mine, I had, who was in my major, I we were just hanging out, and I said, "So, what are you going to do with graduation? I'm not sure, what I'm, you know, what I'm going to do with myself here." And he's like, "Oh, I'm going to go to uh, L.A. and check out this uh, this program at USC for uh, scoring for film and television. They've got, you know, they've got Jerry Goldsmith as a teacher. They've got Chris Young." And I remember thinking, "Really? Can I apply? Like, what 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 is this magical program you're speaking of? Because I hadn't heard of it." And um, so I did some research and it turned out to be the USC scoring for motion picture and television program. Um, I applied literally within a week and I miraculously got in um, that June, like right as I graduated. So I just flipped on a dime when I got was accepted to come out here and told my parents, I'm going to go to LA. Um, I need to apply for a loan and just, you know, figure out all the details of it. But essentially that was my intro to coming out here and I just did it on a whim. Um, I came out and I, um, took the program, which was a one-year program. Do you know about this program? The USC program? Correct. Yeah. 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 So, um, anyway, I came out and at the time, um, so this was 95 to 96 and that really pushed, pushed, pushed the, everything for me. We had, it was like a one-year intensive study of which I really wish I had I had more time to do at Berkeley, but I just ran out of time. So it was like the perfect bridge, and um, mm -hmm. it was a class of like twenty people. Um, we had Elmer Bernstein was one of the resident teachers. We had Chris Young was there, um, Joe Harnell, and just a lot of just amazing faculty. And so within that year, I definitely had hooked into the idea of love this is the career I want to pursue. And, you know, I, I, I want to do this. I, I love this work. So that's my story of how I got here to LA. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think I read that after you graduated, you were looking for like an assistant gig. And did that seem like a normal thing that people who graduate that kind of program just go and find a, a bigger name composer and go assist that person? You know what? They, they did at that time. Um, but I got to be honest, man, when I got out of the, the program, I had heard, well, there was one thing working against me. One, I didn't really know the technology as well as some of my classmates. So you got to remember, this is the time when Pro Tools was fairly kind of starting to grow in the composer world, but mostly people were working with Digital Performer or Vision, you know, really early programs that I had minimal experience with. And I certainly didn't have the same tech chops as like people I, I knew who were going and applying for these jobs. So I had a lot of growing to do. Um, so the assistant path wasn't particularly something that I felt I could do, but it also wasn't as, I mean, it was such a mystery. Like, how do you get a assistant job? Where do you communicate? There's no, you know, 
internet at this point. I mean, it's like crazy, dude, to think about like the just the difference in communication that we can do these days and reaching out to people who otherwise never would have been able to contact. So there was a couple of helpful ways that people were getting interviews through, you know, just connections at USC, whether it was professors who had a, you know, friend in town. Um, and some, some of my friends went to work with Mike Post. Um, a buddy of mine went to work with David Schwartz. And, you know, I interviewed for all these people. I never, I didn't get the jobs I had, um, you know, um, but it was, you know, I don't know. It was just my path. I ended up having to get like literally a day job, mm-hmm. work that, work that day job to pay my rent and just keep hitting up student filmmakers at night and trying to score these, you know, student films. Cause again, you know, I got out of this program, but, you know, training as a young composer, a young composer trying to learn the craft of film scoring but with only experience of doing scenes. Um, so growing into like doing long form or stuff needed, I needed person personally, I needed time to, um, to get there. So that's what I found myself doing for the few years after that, just living and, and doing a lot of student work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting point that I guess in most of these types of programs, you don't get to do like a full film. It is always like, I mean, I see people uh, rescore scenes right now and like, yeah. there's use in that, but it's, uh, and part of the the challenge is figuring out how to tie a whole thing together. Absolutely, man. I mean, like that's was so like I feel like that could have been I mean, I don't know how much they could have really showed you because it would have changed the course. And you could probably just do a course on how to score an entire film. Um, from top to bottom and all the things that come with that. But yeah, I always thought, God, it just took me so long to write this one cue. You mean you mean you gotta score a whole film? I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> Uh, it just seems so daunting until you until you get to a place of able to write a little you know faster and I think a little bit more fluid. Um, you know, it just took me. I was a you know slow learner, slow growth. Mm-hmm. So then, can you walk us through how you ended up from, I guess, not a day job in music to to getting into the ad world? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I did the day job about for about two and a half years. Um, maybe a little longer before I definitely started to get frustrated seeing all my, all my friends, you know, finding jobs, whether it was an assistant job, some writing jobs here and there. So I started to make a point to be a little bit more proactive with, you know, just telling people what I do and, you know, giving my cassette, which we had cassettes back then, um, to whoever would want to listen. And the company I worked for was a graphic design company. So at the time they were designing, uh, like logos for like, you know, local TV stations, sometimes stations in Europe's and they had custom music. They were hiring people to write, even if it was like just a three second sting or a 20 second, you know, piece of music. So I met a few composers that they were hiring because I was delivering them their, you know, their VHS beta tapes or whatever to work to. And, um, so two things kind of happened. One of those composers, um, befriended, you know, we became buddies and he had, giving me a call to like write a couple extra cues on a show he was just like overloaded with doing. At the same time, um, as you'd mentioned before, I had a really random, you know, meeting, chance meeting with Harry Gregson Williams, who's our close friend ended up moving in to be our roommate at the time. We weren't close friends then, but we became close friends. And um, I also gave him a cassette. So from those two just kind of random moments, I started to get option opportunities to do some additional writing for one person. And then I got to do some commercials through the Harry connection at uh, the part of media ventures at the time, which was called Siberia Inc. And if you don't know, media ventures was, was the old remote control. This was Hans's place um, back in the day. 
um, at the, his beginnings. So I quit my job, my day job, literally with the intent to just like do temping work if I could get it and just hope for the best. And honestly, miraculously, like we were talking before, things just kind of went my way. I, I landed one of those commercials for the, uh, um, the Siberia Inc. They had me demo for, I think a blockbuster video commercial and I, I won it. And that led to some more opportunities with them to continue to, you know, write commercials at the same time. My friend, um, Rob, Rob Cairns, um, he had liked the cues I'd written for him on some of these shows, which were like kind of techie, techie doc shows on, uh, TLC back at the time, um, TLC and, and stuff like that. And I just kept doing it and it started to kind of pile on itself. So I had made the transition. I was, you know, making just barely enough to eat and pay rent, but it was, um, it was starting to work out. Hey, that's great to hear. Um, and it's interesting to see the, uh, type of proactiveness that it, it did take and how you, it was subtle though, too. It was subtle. It took a few years for me to, and again, man, this is just my story. I mean, like I, when I got out of college, I was, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready. I wasn't probably as mature as I've seen. Definitely a lot of friends I have these days when they get out, they just know. And they like, you know, they're really at it. I got out and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And it really took, I took my time getting to a place of having that internal push. Because you know it's it's a hard business, and you have to, um, I think you have to really really want it to 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 stay and to sustain through through all the no's and all the doors that close on you, because it's just not it's not black and white. Um, but um, yeah, I mean it was it was just my path. Right, and then while you, I mean, I assume like after getting your first big thing with Blockbuster, that must have been a great feeling. Uh, when did you decide to, uh, or when did your interest go back to like? longer form like film and TV from ads. Well, so um, I'll give you just an anecdote story and I'll, I'll get there. Essentially, so that Blockbuster video commercial turned into um, a residency. I was invited by that company to come in as a young staff composer to be on staff to do commercials. This was like three months after I quit my day job. I thought, whoa, I'm like, I made it. This is it. I got, I mean, I got this commercial. I am in, are you kidding me? I'm going to be at uh, Hans Zimmer's Media Adventures. So like down the hall for me was John Powell. Around the other corner was Harry Gregson Williams. Um, Steve Jablonski still worked for Harry Gregson Williams. This was so early with, with a lot of people around that were just amazing artists and that were about to blow up, right? Um, that lasted roughly around nine months. And around nine months later, they had made some internal changes and decided that the commercial division that they had, you know, curated, they were going to make some changes with. And essentially that meant I was out of a gig. So nine minutes, nine months into what I thought was like the path and the answer turned on me like that. And to their credit, they were super supportive and said, you know, we're going to pass your name on to it. They had known of another um, company down the street because getting back to that tech part of me, I didn't really have the skill set to move from junior composer to like a tech assistant. I didn't, you know what I mean? I couldn't parlay that opportunity into like, well, maybe I can stay and load samples and stuff. But instead they, they referred me to a commercial company down the street who was looking for potentially a freelance composer or a staff composer. And that turned out to be Emoto. So I, I, you know, sent my tape over to there. I met those people and I interviewed for them and they said, thank you very much. We like your work. We'll, you know, we'll keep you in mind. Four months go by. 
And I got a call from them that they had a slot for me to come in and work if I wanted to. And I was like, great. So I went back, I moved transition over there. I did ads for two years. So this is right now, we're probably looking about three years into this doing ad work. At that time, I realized the writing on the wall that I probably could have stayed in ads for, you know, as long as I wanted to. But the skills that I was learning, what we talked about, like the production chops, clients, all amazing and all a great foundation, but I was still working in 30 second format or 15 second format. So I started to feel internally my clock ticking, like, you know, all those skills I've learned and SC and Berkeley about scoring dramatically, they're like, they're not, those muscles are not getting used. So I started to seek out additional composer work uh, on the side, either while I was doing the ads or towards the end of it. And another kind of fortuitous thing happened. A mutual friend connected me with the, the composer who was scoring Buffy the Vampire at the time who needed help. And this was season five of Buffy. Um, I didn't have any Buffy the Vampire type of music on my resume, but again, I was eager and and ready to you know transition on. And, um, and it gave me a shot to help him with the episode, which I did. And that turned into scoring um, season five with him, you know, on, on, on his team. And um, that's when the transition began for me to work my way out of the ad world and move into what would become over the next five years or so consistent work as an additional composer arranger on other composers teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny because uh, uh, five to six years working with other composers before getting more of your own stuff doesn't even seem like that long, but. Um, well, add them all up. And like now we're looking at eight years, you know, working in this capacity. Um, but five years work in of additional writer was, I should specify that was mostly in television. So again, when I was ready for the next jump, I started parlaying some of that work. This must have been, I'm trying to do a timeline now, 2007-ish. I started to seek out other opportunities. To I wanted to, at that point, I was ready. I felt like I was ready to move on to the next level. And I started to seek out opportunity with film composers. And again, just through networking and having friends in the, in the business and, you know, referrals would happen. And, um, eventually that's when I've, you know, started to get opportunity to do some help with, um, Brian Tyler and eventually John Debney. And then I would do some work with Harry Gregson Williams, you know, here and there on some of his projects, mostly as a guitar player and arranger, but, um, you know, it just kind of continued and it, and it kind of growed. And I kind of kept, I guess, raising my stock as, as a consistent, you know, part of a team that could deliver on time and, you know, do what was asked and I could morph into what the style that they needed and, and, um, sound like it and not, not sound like I couldn't fit with the sound that they were trying to do. Cause that's also in a really, um, unspoken, untaught thing, skill set when you're arranging or composing additional music is that really you're there to kind of drive the main composer. So you have to cultivate like what, what is their sound and can you, can you do that? Right. Yeah, but at the same time, you you bring your own unique uh, skill set too. And oh, absolutely! Working with such a big, great composers and also varied composers, musically speaking, too, um, probably built your own toolkit for your own projects later. It did, and it took. Um, um, it it certainly did, and you know, it also looked. It also gave me a platform to, and again, just my experience. It gave me a platform to test my boundaries and test my limits and also push those limits. Cause you would get direct feedback from composers who were doing it for a long time and they could tell you 
things that you may may be missing and things that if I had been writing those otherwise for like a director or producer, they wouldn't be able to give me the same sort of feedback on, you know, just compositional growth. Right. It's better to hear maybe don't use spiccato strings as opposed to take out that green sound. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, like even, you know, I, you know, as I say that I'm like, I had a lot of schooling, um, in that role as an additional writer and, and arranger and, um, yeah. it helped me kind of shape who I was to become. Now, a lot of people go into additional music and then kind of get stuck in that field because writing, as you mentioned, is, is important, but, um, it's almost like a completely different skill to actually getting your own gigs and doing that type of thing. Did you get to sit in on any of like the business type of meetings where you got to see how uh, these composers went about securing work? And did any of that end up helping you get your own projects with your name on? Um, you know, it was, um, uh, to answer your question, I didn't really sit in on anyone's meetings or, you know, um, you know, pitches for jobs. Um, I was always working um, in my own space, in my own studio. So I wasn't part of, um, you know, someone's facility. Um but what what did happen was, as in as you know, we kind of talk about the years doing this. Essentially, again, my internal clock started to tell me at a certain time. Okay, I think I think you know I think it's time to to move on, or it's time to raise raise you know just raise the level of things because yes, I could just be an additional composer forever and just continue to work for this person that person. But you've you know there's a there's a ceiling to that. Um, I realized I had been here for a long time, but I had very minimal amount of contacts in the production world and in the directing world. And that was just due to being, you know, on music teams and not necessarily out there networking out there, you know, meeting other people who I could work with directly. So that started to happen. And at the same time, I had started to make some of these things known to the writers who I was working with and they were super supportive to say, okay. As in, you know, maybe we can co-credit, you know, we can find some things to co-credit on and just start to help me get some awareness out there, which happened. And at the same time, I also started to do a little bit more on the networking side and on the selling side and all the things that people tell you, you know, putting your music out there, uh, going to networking sessions and, you know, film festival, you know, all the things you got to do to just meet people and be a little bit more proactive about selling yourself. And, you know, again, just like, very fortunate, man. Things just kind of worked out. John Debney had asked me to do something and we had done a few projects together and I'd been helping him out on his team. And then he was awesome. He's like, Hey man, this, this mini series is coming. Should we just, you know, co-credit it? And that was actually the Hatfields and McCoys. And, um, and we got a friggin' Emmy nomination. It was just like, unbelievable. The whole thing was like, Oh wow, this is this, it's this easy. Um, but it's not, I'm just, I'm making fun. But, um, you know, he, he really helped my career with that. Brian Tyler really helped me out. We co-did the Scorpion together. And that was um, another help as far as just having the name out there. Because, you know, it does make a difference. And then at the same time, you know, Bloodline came along through another friend, composer I had, at, uh, a buddy of mine at SC, Edward Rogers, um, another composer. And that was more of the, that just it, this all happened at the same time is what I'm trying to say. And, and it, and it pushed things forward for me, but the bloodline gig did not come from an additional composer setting. It was more of the Ed and I had done a project together and people we had met on that project, editors, supervisors, so forth had passed our names along to the bloodline people when they were looking. 
And so we got an opportunity to demo. So yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like it was like I said, if I could bottle all this and like and like into a manual on how to do things, I don't even know if I could because if it's all so kind of varied but still leading somewhere. For sure. Yeah, it's so weird and random how this type of career path goes for everyone. <laughs> it is. It really is, man. And um, you know, it makes it's part of the excitement, but you know, at the same time, it's it's frightening if I had thought 15 years ago what am I going to have to go through to get to where I want to be? I would have been scared. You know, I would have been like, I don't know if I can I handle all that change. Can I handle the uncertainty? Can you handle the opportunity when you may not think you're ready? Cause you know, you just don't, you just don't know. But um, fortunately and thankfully I've um, you know, had a lot of things go my way and, you know, super grateful for it. For sure. So before we go to the final segment for the podcast, I just want to uh, ask a bit about the fugitive, which is now up on Quibi. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there was anything interesting about the process. Uh, I mean, Quibi is a pretty new platform. So maybe talking just a bit about the challenges of shorter form television, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you just, you just nailed it right there. It really is like working on a series, like a television series in that um, it's uh, it's in episodes and you know, you're, you're moving from one to the next in a linear fashion. But the, you know, the difference for this is that um, like you said, they're short, um, and, and actually it's, it really is a film. It's really like a two hour film. Um, but, um, you know, short little between six, our episodes were between six to eight, I want to say minutes. Um, some of them may have gotten closer to 10, but they were, they were, you know, they were a little varied. And, um, so this project, um, you know, this project came through my relationship with a producer on Scorpion. So, uh, I was fortunate enough to get on this. And we also, similar to television, it was, it was very fast. I knew about this job last fall. I knew about it as soon as October or September, but I wasn't able to start until June, uh, January because of the, um, obviously the shoot, they had to cut and um, it was right around the holiday season. But then once I was able to begin, we had about six weeks to the first dub to get through 14 episodes I mean, I, I don't even, I shudder to think about adding up the music. It's a lot. It's a fugitive. So it's like, you know, it's a driving action thriller. The music is definitely key in keeping the pacing moving and, you know, moving the storyline. But, um, you know, yeah, so, but we all got there. And fortunately, I got to record, I did a sweetening session. So most of the music is, is produced here at my studio. Uh, the sound of it kind of, you know, the call. When I first spoke to Nick Santora, when he um, reached out, you know, he's like, hey, what do you think of doing the fugitive? You know, I told the studio, let's just, let's do, you know, let's do something like the, like the 1993 movie, just like a little updated, but the sound like that. And I thought, great. And of course, inside I'm thinking, oh, it's James Newton Howard. Man, I know that score. I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't, that's a lot of pressure. Um, but, um, you know, essentially the sound that we landed on going for and that everybody wanted to hear was something, you know, that felt like a contemporary thriller, but that also, did pay a little bit of homage to the 93 score, um, which if you listen to it, it's it's really cool. And it's definitely a classic, but it does sound like it's from, you know, 1993. There's a lot of brass and there's a lot of like scoring tendencies that are from a certain time. So we figured out how to best make that happen. And one of the things I was uh, really hoping for and pushed a lot for was to be able to do a sweetening session with a string orchestra, at least a string orchestra, um, to just give the score some life. 
So obviously, as you know, when you get into these, you know, you have obstacles like budget and time that certainly have to do with your ability to um, produce, you know, your, your wishful, you know, what you're wishing to produce versus what you have, what you can produce. So for this, we landed on a, like a 22 piece string group. Uh, we had two sessions planned and got it all produced and written and recorded just by the last week of February mixed the first week of March and then everything shut down. It was, it was just the craziest run of, of, of life. But, um, you know, I'm super happy to see it come out. Um, I'm really proud of the work, put a ton of stuff into it. I got to hire an orchestrator, which doesn't happen all the time. You know, the full team, the full production team. And, um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Really, really excited to be a part of it. Cool. Well, I'm excited to go to the final segment for this podcast, Tech Talk, a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little uh, as you want about it. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm ready. So the first one I got here is DAW. DAW. Pro Tools. Pro Tools, Pro Tools, Pro Tools. I got my start on Digital Performer and, uh, you know, it was great, but I moved to Pro Tools at an early phase of my career when I was doing ads. And the, mo the reason I moved to Pro Tools was because the production the production in it. It's just easier to produce, easier to EQ, easier to just, you know, produce on. And then once MIDI started to get, you know, a little bit more varied and, and expanded enough, just enough to where I could use it, I just knew I was going to just stay there. So yeah, Pro Tools. Cool. Next we got the Axis Virus, TI. Well, I have an Axis Virus B. Does that count? Oh, it's a B. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have one and I feel like it's, it's feel like it dates me. It's like, it's a, it was a very popular synth, um, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, um, I love it, man. It's great. Did you happen to get that while you were at, um, at Hans's? I think I did, dude. I think I definitely remember seeing them there. Um, I don't know if I could afford one then, to be honest with you. I might've bought it like a year or two later, but yes, I've had this one and it's been repaired many times. Like it's, I've, it's been around. For sure. <laughs> cool. Uh, next we've got ooh, Umlaut Audio. Ah, Umlaut. Yeah. Um, Umlaut's great, man. And that was, um, you know, my first experience with Umlaut was um, right after we did Bloodline. And we talked to them about um, having them, because they, they, they were going to come in and make some new new toys for all of us to use, composers in the, in the business. and. Wow. They um, had a really cool angle. Essentially, they they could take any sound that you had or any sort of source material and build what you needed. So um, we had them build some things for Bloodline and patches and rhythms and so forth. And you know, I still use I still use it to this day. Still part of my my templates. Cool. And then next one is just team. Team. Yeah. Teamwork makes the dream work. I mean, uh, teams are, you know, teams, you know, teams are a big part of um, this business and it takes time to, I think, understand, or I guess, I mean, look, you have to be in a position to even need a team and which really comes at the result of time versus output. You know, how much time do you have to, to work on a project and to deliver the output that they need versus how do you get there? And a team can mean anything, you know, like I have a full-time assistant. Um, I had a part-time assistant as needed because the overflow and those roles are just invaluable. Keeping the schedules together, keeping things organized, keeping your files archived properly, that you, things that you otherwise would do, but you've got to sit and create. And so doing that stuff just, 
you know, it's just takes away from, from that. Plus I have a family. So, you know, we all have to like live. And then you, whether you bring on, uh, I have, so when I was doing Scorpion, I had also gotten the show, um, Elena Vavilor, which you talked about and which is a very demanding animation project and carrying multiple jobs was, it was so daunting to me. And I was like on the brink of just quitting many times and just thinking, I don't, I can't do this. this is like, this is crazy as far as the amount of output overlapping mixed dates. And so you you surround yourself with people who can help you. Can you bring in additional rangers, additional writers that can, you know, like I learned when I was coming up to um, be a part of the team to deliver the product and, you know, get you to the line and um, finish line. And uh, man, it's, it's a huge help. It also like relieves some of the pressure that you feel as, you know, the person hired to do all this where you don't have to bear the weight of every single detail top to bottom that goes with, um, you know, doing this line of work. So teamwork makes the dream work. Cool. Uh, last thing we have here is just orchestra uh, or contact orchestral instruments. Oh, that is techie. Um, contact orchestral instruments. Well, um, I mean, I use all the libraries. I don't even know what the answer is. Cause I just, I have all the libraries, um, well, all of the above. All of the above, yeah. I mean, I out of a out of a necessity, particularly for the Disney show, you know, um, leaned heavily on the um, Hollywood stuff, Hollywood Orchestra, um, Cine Samples. I'm just rattling them off. Spitfire. I mean, yeah, all of them, all of them, all very of them. very solid and very um, useful and very very helpful. And again, coming from someone who has seeing the days of the Miroslav orchestra and like old Roland S seven sixty samples violins. I mean, it's incredible what, um, you know, what you can do today from, you know, your own studio. For sure. Cool. Well, you killed it here with tech talk. Do you want to let the people know if there's anything else coming up? Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, um, yeah. So the fugitive comes out today on Quibi and then uh, later this month on August 23rd on the Disney Junior will be the series finale to Elena Vavilor, which I've been um, scoring for the last four years. And um, it's an exciting three-part special movie, um, super epic, and uh, should be a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. Appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.